you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. Hi, this is Larry Mantle, host of Air Talk on KPCC. Since the start of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had a daily segment on Air Talk devoted to the latest information about COVID-19. As time's gone on, we've looked at vaccines and how the virus and pandemic have affected the lives of Southern Californians. That includes doctors, nurses, epidemiologists, and other medical professionals fighting the virus on the front lines. In each episode, of this podcast, we'll speak with one of our experts on the rotating panel of AirTalk guests who will be sharing their expertise with us daily. You can also listen anytime at las.com, kpecc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. With us to talk about the very latest developments from UCLA uh, School of Medicine, the Geffen School of Medicine, Director for Antimicrobial Stewardship and Associate Professor of Infectious Diseases, Dr. Thara Vijayan. Dr. Vijayan, so good to have you back with us on AirTalk. Really nice to be back. Thank you so much, Larry. Let's start first. Your your thoughts about the president and just to sort of paraphrase what he was saying. Uh, we're taking this very seriously, but we shouldn't be panicking about it as we're learning about this variant. You you Do you like that approach? Uh, absolutely. I think we need to exercise caution. We still don't know enough about it clinically in terms of uh, you know, who is going to be at risk, um, if it at all affects people who are vaccinated, uh, and any number of things. So I, I think, and and also just the transmissibility, I think we have to definitely, you know, it, it's a matter of waiting and seeing, and I know how hard that is. I, I think we all like to know what's going to happen. And um, I think we all just have to exercise some patience, for sure. It, it seemed like with the first identification of the virus by researchers in South Africa, the concern because of the case uh, increases there was that, oh, this this is highly communicable. We see what's going on with the spike protein and how how you know that makes it apparently more transmissible. But since we've had identification of this variant in Europe, uh, and it appears it was there before it was identified in South Africa, does, and again, I know it's very early with that caveat, but does that maybe at least quell a little bit of the concern that this is a, a an exploding variant? I think it is um, somewhat reassuring at the moment. At the very least, uh, the hope would be that vaccinated individuals are not going to get terribly sick from this, the same way that we saw Delta over the summer. You know, Delta definitely, we had a Delta surge. It, it continues to be, as far as we know, the predominant strain uh, in California. But, you know, even among vaccinated individuals, they're not likely to be at least hospitalized. So I am somewhat reassured by that where hospitalization numbers are actually still relatively low. Um, our percent positivity in L.A. County is still relatively low or about 1.3 percent. So, I, you know, all of those things are somewhat reassuring, assuming that there is some Omicron circulating uh, in the United States as well, which it, it there likely is. Uh, we have that identification from a Minnesota resident who had traveled uh, from New York City 
So did, did that indicate to you that likely there is domestic uh, transmission or is a one-off case like that potentially just that and doesn't tell you much? No, I, I actually suspect that there is actually more than we realize. We just are not, you know, we haven't sequenced it yet. We're not doing universal sequencing because sequencing is actually quite labor intensive and very, very hard to do. Um, but now that we know that it's here, I think we're going to probably see more and more that are probably community acquired. If you have questions for Dr. Vijayan of UCLA's Gavin School of Medicine, it's a great chance for you to ask them of her. We're at 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-5722. You can email us your question at atcomments at kpcc.org. Please make certain you include your location along with your first name. That's just helpful for us to know. Uh, you can tweet at AirTalk, also including your location, please, or you can post Post a message on the AirTalk Facebook page, 866-893-5722. The president also said the federal government will reemphasize the importance of boosters for all adults, that that's going to be important in the fight against COVID-19 and specifically the Omicron variant. And uh, the president calling on all employers to do as the federal government has done and provide paid time off to their employees to get their booster shots. So the president asking employers to do that. Again, we're at 866-893-KPECC or the uh, AirTalk uh, uh, email uh, address atcomments at kpcc.org. Dr. Vijayan, we've had uh, since the identification of Omicron, um, the CDC uh, has uh, given this recommendation that everybody uh, get their booster shot for COVID-19 and particularly important for older Americans to do so. Why is that? So for older Americans, we know that there is a a phenomenon known as immune senescence, which means that the immune system, um, the ability of the immune system to um, to function wanes over over time. So over 65 years uh, of age, we do see that um, that individuals actually have a slight loss in what we call their T cell immunity. This is why it's actually really important for older individuals, for example, to get the high dose flu vaccine, um, because we think that the high dose flu vaccine um, is more effective than the standard dose in in older individuals. Um, so you know, because of that, it's it's probably the most important that older individuals actually get the booster, um, followed by the, the rest of the population. Uh, The president also mentioning that insurers are expected now to pay for rapid home testing of COVID-19. There's also been a challenge. Sometimes people, you know, finding the approved uh, home test to be able to do that. Who do you recommend does home testing? Yeah, so the tests are actually best validated in patients in individuals who have symptoms and within the first three days of symptoms. So it's really those patients, those individuals who um, likely have a high enough viral load for them to have a positive antigen test, which is what the test actually measures. And the test doesn't actually, those rapid tests don't actually measure the, the genetic material. They actually measure um, what we call an antigen, which is a protein um, and so you have to have enough virus in your body for that to actually be positive. And that tends to happen within the first three days of symptoms.
866-893-KPECC. Luke in Larchmont Village emailed us, I'm a healthcare professional and have been triple vaccinated. The booster shots will most likely not end here, um, as was told to me when I received my third shot. This will be an ongoing requirement, likely for years to come. What impact might these ongoing shots have on our bodies? You know, uh, I think that we will only that the boosters will only be recommended if there's enough safety data to suggest that there, there won't be any impact on on your body, any long term impact on your body. So the hope would be that if boosters are ultimately recommended, let's say yearly, the way flu shots are recommended, um, then there there shouldn't be any particularly negative consequence to to any one particular person. All right. Uh, We have uh, Ruse in Long Beach who asks, do these different variants compete with each other? Uh, What is the dominant variant throughout uh, Southern California? I I believe it's still Delta uh, by a long number. But you have more specific numbers on the split of, of positive COVID cases or hospitalizations based on variant. Yeah, I don't have those specific data. My understanding is that Delta remains uh, the predominant strain. Um, The question of whether one uh, tends to outcompete the other, it all just depends on transmissibility. Um, You know, it's sort of interesting when I think back at this time last year, we were in the middle of our worst surge ever um, in an unvaccinated, completely unvaccinated population because we didn't have the vaccine at that time. Um, we were seeing a lot of hospitalizations. Our, many of our, um, our county hospitals were completely overwhelmed. And we actually had a strain known as Epsilon, which was um, uh, also known as the California variant. Um, for whatever reasons, that strain actually um, did not really take foothold all over the country the way it did in California. And the, way, the, the reason we know that to some extent is um, the California variant actually um, was resistant to one of our monoclonal antibodies called bamlanivimab. So that was something that we actually couldn't use uh, in the mm. state of California very early on, whereas actually it was quite effective in other parts of the country. So there, there are lots of things we just don't understand about why some variants take foothold in some regions and why uh, and not others. And, uh, you know, what are the different factors there? It, it remains very Yeah. Well, and I remember, um, and and perhaps you do too, I think it was early on in the pandemic when we were just identifying these variants, and there were a couple um, that seemed to be Southern California specific that were identified. And then I guess, you know, uh, they lost out in the competition and and didn't gain a toehold out of Southern California. Yeah. Yeah. It's very peculiar how, how these things sort of rise geographically. Sometimes and sometimes more universally, it's it's um, you know it, it's certainly beyond my scope as an infectious disease doctor. I think I'll leave that to the virologist to try to figure out. It it is interesting though that it it doesn't seem that necessarily the most threatening variant is the one that dominates. Um, and I guess because we were we were talking about this actually yesterday on the program that um, if if. Um, the majority of the hosts are, are killed off. That's not good for the virus. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. Um, some of the most deadly viruses actually 
don't spread because they do, um, they kill all of their hosts. Um, you know, we don't, and I guess, you know, some examples of that might be something like Ebola, which has like a, you know, 60% fatality rate. Um, that's certainly not, not what we're seeing with uh, the various variants, although, um, you know, it's certainly the, the mortality is much higher than, than many of the other respiratory viruses we've ever seen, at least in my lifetime, for sure. Frank in Hollywood says, my mother wants to get vaccinated. She's 73. Her husband has told her that she'll go to hell if she does that. I can't imagine I'm the only person in this kind of predicament, Frank says. Do you have any advice, doctor, on dealing with someone who has a deeply held religious belief like this? Uh, it's so tough. Um, you know, I think that what I would really try to encourage is reaching out to other individuals, perhaps of the of the same faith, um, who might have different opinions about um, about that. You know, I mean, maybe just trying to gently probe or, or even, um, you know, having we, we do a lot of outreach to different faith based communities and um, having um, really influential people like pastors try to counsel um, individuals who have, you know, who who there are very um, has put a lot of faith um, in um, in their um, in their pastors. I think those are those are some ways to potentially um, reach out to some of these folks. But um, but it's hard. It's really really hard when people have um, the sort of fixed beliefs like that. We we had on the program uh, from Fuller Semin- Seminary, the Evangelical Christian Seminary in, in Pasadena, and I can't remember uh, whether he was a, a postdoc or or um, lecturer at Fuller, but uh, he's actually, you know, made it a real campaign to try and encourage Christians to get vaccinated and, and made the point there's nothing biblical about not getting a vaccination. He wrote an op-ed, the L.A. Times published, we we had him on the program. So there are people that are out there attempting to counteract uh, this perspective uh, in Christianity, but um, obviously it's it's very challenging. We still see among evangelical Christians a significant percentage who are resistant to vaccination. We're talking with uh, Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA, a professor of infectious disease, Thara Vijayan. If you have questions for Dr. Vijayan, we're at 866-893-KPCC, 866 and our producer, Matt Wright, uh, I'm sorry, Matt, Matt D'Angelo Antonio, uh, reminds us as well that the Pope has endorsed the vaccine. So that's right. Uh, so given that uh, very clear guidance for Roman Catholics throughout the world, 866-893-KPECC, or you can email us at comments at kpecc.org. Uh, please include your location as well as your first name. Let's talk a bit about um, what public health uh, experts are, are, are doing and officials responsible for uh, the regulations under which we work, doctor. They're not planning as a result of Omicron to do any additional lockdowns or any additional restrictions. City of Los Angeles already has some of the, the most stringent restrictions um, requiring vaccination of any place in the United States. If Omicron is found to be even more highly transmissible and 
with similar negative health consequences as the Delta variant. Are there things that that public health officials uh, could or should mandate that would make a difference? Yeah, you know, I think that the the main thing that we have to be vigilant about is whether our hospitals are becoming overwhelmed again. You know, so once we start to see numbers creeping up in in terms of hospitalizations, if our less resourced hospitals, you know, such as our county hospitals, are starting to feel overwhelmed, then that that might be a reason to take additional measures um, to potentially prevent the spread. But I think really, realistically, at this point, we should really just be trying to promote um, vaccination uh, and boosting in as many people as possible at this point. Um, I think I think imposing additional lockdowns um, can are, is really, really hard for the economy, um, and it's really hard for a lot of people's mental well-being. And so you don't you have to really weigh all of these risks that you take. Um, so at the moment, I don't think that there should be any additional measures. But if certainly if we start to see hospitals getting overwhelmed, then, then that, that's a different issue. Jennifer in North Hollywood asks, how safe are hospitals now? As a person who might have to go in for a stay soon, I'd like to know more about how patients are being protected for, for uh, the time they're there for routine surgeries. Yeah, that's that's a great question. Uh, so, you know, many hospitals are still requiring um, testing before any elective procedure, and that's certainly true at UCLA, and that will probably be true for the foreseeable future until we can be a little bit more assured that rates are not going up. Um, so at least that's one strategy that a lot of hospitals are using is actually making sure that um, any individuals who are undergoing elective procedures get tested beforehand. Um, other strat, everybody is still doing universal masking in the hospital. We see we don't see any hospital transmissions of COVID nineteen, um, uh, at least uh, not you know not to the extent that we did perhaps a little early in the pandemic. So all of those strategies are really helping the universal masking and then the the testing, the fairly frequent testing, actually. Jennifer was also concerned about whether hospitals uh, that are treating COVID patients have any of those doctors or nurses who are then working with other patients for routine surgeries, for example, and, and, and could that end up spreading the virus in the hospital? Um. Sorry to clarify the if the doctors and nurses are infected. If if it's wondering if their nurses and doctors working with COVID patients providing oh. care, do they yeah. ever work then aside from areas with non-COVID? I think she's concerned that somehow they could get infected from COVID patients, and I guess that's despite all the PPE and other stuff and 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 vaccination and testing that those docs and nurses get, um, but whether there could be transference to people that are there for other than COVID reasons. Yeah. Um, and I, and I can certainly see how that's a concern. I can tell you, so a couple of things, one is that the PPE that we use is very protective. Um, and I, and not, you know, I myself have worked with COVID patients over the last almost two years. It's hard to imagine. We're almost approaching two years. Um, and have not gotten infected once. Um, and so, you know, the PPE is very, very secure in that way. Um, in addition, 
most, uh, most, not all, um, healthcare workers have been vaccinated. And so I think those two layers of protection um, really are, are essential for preventing um, physicians and nurses and all of the hospital staff from getting infected. I mean, the good thing about hospital environment is, is as you're saying, everybody is so tested. Um, and I assume that if there is a positive case, there's vigilance about tracking that because the stakes are so high for hospitals that um, all of that makes it a you know, particularly uh, observant environment. That's right. Absolutely. Steve in La Cunada tweets at AirTalk, how much does SARS-CoV-2 have to mutate before it's considered a whole new virus and requires a whole new vaccine formula? I believe I heard it's only 30 percent different from original uh, SARS-CoV. Yeah, that's a that's a, a good question. So it's it's unlikely to become a whole new virus, but there certainly can, in theory, be a, a virus that um, completely evades uh, any of the natural or vaccine-associated immunity that we've established so far. Um, and that certainly was true for, for example, with pandemic influenza in two thousand nine. Um, it was a, a novel enough strain where um, most individuals, with the exception of those who actually were potentially exposed to um, the pandemic flu of, of 1919, um, were very, very vulnerable to that particular uh, influenza strain. What percentage of uh, genetic mutation? Uh, you know, I can't say uh, for sure as a, as a virologist, but it certainly is possible that there could be enough of a transfer uh, transformation in the spike road protein for there to be complete evasion of, of any natural or acquired immunity that we've built. Um, hopefully that will not happen anytime soon. And I don't think that, uh, you know, we'll, hopefully we'll have enough strategies to prevent that from happening again. Aaron in Monrovia emailed us at ATComments at kpcc.org. My daughter is 17, works part-time at Trader Joe's. She was vaccinated early on as an essential worker, but she's not eligible for a booster because she's not 18 yet. She won't be 18 until June of next year. How concerned should I be about the Omicron variant? So, you know, I think that um, if... The, the good news, a part of it just it depends on which vaccine she got. We don't really have the data in the 12 to 18 year olds in terms of whether they're at higher risk without a booster at the moment. There's no reason to believe that they are at higher risk. Um, they, you know, I, I, Our hope is that the two shots will be sufficient for that population for a long period of time. Um, you know, our immune system sort of, they change over time as we get older, right? So um, and in, in fact, younger people have very, very robust immune systems. Um, so there's no reason to believe that that she's going to be at particular risk without a booster because we think that the two sh- shots are sufficient. Um, now, you know, in time, um, if it becomes more apparent that um, those, for example, who got Pfizer, um, you know, the, similar to what we have seen in, in older individuals, have some waning immunity after six months. Um, then there is a there is a chance that the booster may be recommended earlier for for younger people. But at the moment, my hope is that that won't be necessary at all. 
Uh, Aaron in Monrovia emailed us. My daughter is, uh, I'm sorry, that was the one I just read. Sylvia in Glendale emailed us. Since the booster shots might be changing because of the Omicron variant, is it better to wait for the updated shot? So the... I would not wait. Um, the The vaccine certainly won't change that quickly. Um, and again, there's no reason to believe that the, the vaccine is not effective against the Omicron variant at the moment. Um, we don't, we really don't have those data. I actually feel somewhat optimistic um, and maybe I need to feel optimistic at the moment um, that, um, that our vaccines are actually going to do a pretty good job with the Omicron variant. So I would, if you are um, eligible for a booster and due for a booster, I would just get the booster now. Uh, we have Micaiah in Palm Springs who said, we recently started in-person instruction for our children again. With the Omicron variant out there, um, should we be thinking about preparations for isolation and at-home instruction again? I don't think so. Uh, I think that we have enough strategies in place to really protect our children. I think we're still doing masking indoors for our children that hopefully will be, you know, that'll be a a good way to protect them. Um, Kids over five are eligible for the vaccine as well. I myself have actually vaccinated my two children, my five-year-old and my eight-year-old. They both got their second shots on Sunday and did very, very well from them. So all of these strategies hopefully will help us um, prevent any sort of school closures in the future. I think that we know that School closures can be really devastating for a lot of um, a lot of kids in terms of their socialization and their learning. As you look at uh, what California is doing to respond to the Omicron variant, uh, you know what are the things you think, Dr. Vijayan, that that the state needs to be keeping in mind, or you know, do they need to be redoubling the sequencing of COVID tests, for example, to try and determine uh, how much Omicron is here in the in the state? What what do they need to do? Yeah, it, it's a good question. Uh, you know, I mean, I think our current strategies are are pretty good. Uh, you know, again, um, improving vaccination rates, masking indoors for now, unless vaccinated. All of those strategies are are pretty good strategies that we're currently doing. The sequencing question, I think that certainly if the hospitalization uh, numbers start to increase again, we do probably have to do more uh, surveillance and um, and we are doing surveillance at the moment. Uh, there's no question that uh, L- LA County is doing surveillance. We are trying to look for the Omicron variant. We are making sure that our hospitalized individuals are also getting sequenced. So, um, so you know, I think it all depends on how this plays out over the winter. Uh, I think actually, honestly, Thanksgiving, this post-Thanksgiving period will will be some indication. We'll, we'll start to, if we are going to see more cases, we're going to see it now. Um, and then again, probably after our Christmas and, and New Year's um, uh, holidays. So, um, so time will tell. Tony in North Hollywood wondering, how does the World Health Organization come up with the names for the variants? <laughs> That's a really good question that I don't think I have the answer to. They are all uh, Greek uh, alphabet letters. In fact, I was not aware that Omicron was actually a Greek alphabet letter until last week. I thought it was Omega that followed mm-hmm. uh, new, which and we don't we didn't have a new variant uh, yet. So, 
And I think they intentionally skipped new because they were concerned that people would get confused when you because when you say it, it sounds like oh the new variant (laughs) as opposed to the old one. So they skipped Uh, that. Yeah. So uh, funny. Um, uh, Let's see. Nicole in Santa Monica said, "I got the J and J shot six months ago." I don't go out. I'm never around people. Why should I get a booster? People still catch COVID and die, even though they have a booster. I, I guess I'm just scared. Well, Nicole, important for you to keep in mind that for people that have received um, full vaccination, um, this even before we had a booster available, uh, the breakthrough cases that led to hospitalization and particularly death were very, very small. And and Dr. Vijayan, my understanding is the deaths that occurred in breakthrough cases were were pretty much exclusively between people people who were very old, had severely compromised compromised immune systems, so they didn't get a very good response to having received uh, the vaccination, or they had very serious complicating underlying conditions. Is, is that the case? That's absolutely the case. Yeah. The deaths, the very, very few deaths that we've seen in vaccinated individuals um, are really in individuals with all the conditions that you described or with multiple comorbid conditions, um, you know, already pre-existing heart disease and things like that. Um, So, you know, it isn't, it was an, it is, it remains an exceedingly rare circumstance and the vaccinated individual um, will die from COVID-19. Um, but when it happens, it's usually in somebody that's very, very vulnerable to begin with. Uh, April in Highland Park says, I'll be traveling in January with my six-month-old who's breastfeeding. I'm not due for my booster until mid-January after we travel. Should I consider getting it early to pass on antibodies? I don't think so. You know, you know, the booster is really recommended. Uh, the interval for the booster is recommended based on the fact that we know that um, that at least with with some of the vaccines, the immunity does may actually wane um, after time. Although even, you know, I will say that's a little bit debated still, because as we know, we have two arms, the T cells and the B cells. And what we're measuring sometimes is the B cells. We did see um, some increased um, hospitalizations among those who received Pfizer after 120 days of getting the second dose. So, you know, I think that um, I would just wait until you're actually due for the booster. Um, I suspect that, you know, if you're otherwise a a young, healthy person, um, you'll probably have enough antibodies to transfer to your baby. So so likely April would would even now be transferring those antibodies from her shot, say, Five months ago. Yeah, absolutely. B in San Gabriel asks, um, uh, do we know the number of kids 5 to 11 who've been vaccinated so far and whether we've seen any pattern of side effects to the vaccine among those kids? So I, I don't know the actual number of kids that have been vaccinated so far. I can tell you anecdotally that, you know, um, my kids are in a public school district where it does seem like quite a few have been vaccinated. Um, the side effects in kids actually tend to be very minimal. The main one that we've really seen is maybe a sore arm, but not every kid actually experiences that. Um, a lot of the kids don't even get the fevers that um, some of the older, some of us older folks have gotten. Um, and by older, I mean older than 18. 
Um, so, you know, I, I think that kids are tolerating it quite well. Certainly there was that concern for myocarditis in the young, um, young men, um, adolescent and young men um, that we haven't really seen in the younger boys. Um, and, you know, there may be some hormonal component to that, that whole uh, process, but um, we haven't really seen that in, in young children. Uh, we're just, uh, we, we're online checking about the number of kids 5 to 11, and the most recent numbers we could find were in the first week after approval, so we're talking last month, of course, and at that point, 900,000 kids, so uh, we would think at this point we're likely over a million Uh Oh, no, wait, we have an update on that. As of November 18th, 2.6 million kids under the age of 12. Don't know what the percentage of that is. Dr. Vijayan, thank you so much for being with us again. Have a terrific weekend coming up, and pleasure to have you with us on Air Talk. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of COVID in L.A. If you'd like to stay up to date with the latest coronavirus news, you can listen anytime at las.com, at kpecc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. See you next time and stay safe. I'm Larry Mantle. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.